0: Namaste, everyone. Welcome to our first HSC cha Chat. This cha Chat is a webinar series that seeks to bring thought leaders from various different fields and backgrounds together on HSC's platform to discuss critical issues and topics that are relevant to Hindu youth growing up here in the United States and throughout the world. And we're very pleased for our first webinar series to have here with us, um, Sri Krishna Maheshwariji. Krishna Maheshwaraji is the founder and CEO of Hindupedia, the online encyclopedia of Hindu Dharma. He has co authored Making Children Hinduphobic, a critical review of McGraw Hill's world history textbooks. In addition to making an online encyclopedia, the Hindupedia team is also engaged in driving textbook reform to remove Hinduphobic and Indophobic content from textbooks. Krishnaji has himself co founded several Hindu organizations in the past including a very important connection to us here at Hindu Students Council through founding the Cornell Hindu Students Council chapter, Jinma Mission Seattle, Iskan Bhakti Vriksha programs in Boston, San Jose, and Seattle, as well as Yoga Bharti in Seattle. He is an invited speaker on new topics at conferences throughout the United States and has an MBA from Harvard Business School, master's and bachelor's degrees from Cornell University in computer engineering and computer science. Krishnaji, we're really, really thankful to have you here with us today. Before I turn it over to you for um, your presentation, I just wanted to tell our viewers that uh, if you're watching this on YouTube live, you can comment your questions for Krishnaji on the live chat, and then I will um, ask Krishnaji those questions on your behalf. As you all know, my name is Barth, Um, I'm currently the HSC president And I'm really stoked to be hosting this conversation here today with you, Krishnaji, and with all of you watching throughout the world. Okay, so with that, Krishnaji, please um, start your presentation. I'll have your slides up.
1: All right, thank you. Namaste, everyone that's attending. Um, The the one thing I would like to say, this is a webinar. um, We're going through YouTube Live. But at the same time, if we don't engage and participate, this is going to be a really boring session on the other hand if you are participating and asking questions then this can be very very interesting this is a presentation i've given many times and the pace really is determined by you as the audience is listening and engaging my goal is not to go through every single slide in fact if we make it through all of the slides i'm going to be really really disappointed that being said let's let's kick off so so this talk is entitled tracing the origins of hindu dharma The reason we entitle it as such is because we're gonna go on a journey together to try to figure out where we all came from and when we came from, taking an interdisciplinary approach. Can you go to the next slide? So the reason we need to know our past is, and these adages are not something I've come up with, but the past and present are keys to our future. We need to know who we are what our roots are and that helps you understand yourself. And then there are many times where the lack of knowledge on our past can actually cause a lot of confusion. So in other words, this talk is really about your roots and your identity as it is about mine. Next slide. Um, And can you hit full screen part? There's a little bit of animation that's not going to work if we're not in slideshow mode. Uh, The Vedas, it's important to understand what the Vedas are and to put them in context. We talk about the Veda being eternal. What that really means is the knowledge contained within the Veda are eternal. They were heard by rishis multiple times over multiple ages and passed on through an oral tradition. At some point in time, they were written down. A lot of them were destroyed. Others, over the last couple hundred years added content to it with an intention to distort the message and the meaning and the result is what we've received today so you'll often hear that the vedas are eternal and when people say that they don't distinguish between the content and the book itself you will also hear people talk about the dating of the vedas as dates that don't make a lot of sense to us but they do it with with very interesting arguments around linguistics for the most part again, they're dating the language of the knowledge as it was written down the last time it was written down after all of the rest of these things that happened. So, so we need to understand this context when we think about the Veda. Uh, but that sounds like, it looks like you're not having success on slide screen, slide full screen mode. Uh, go to the next slide. All right, so, so this was supposed to be an animation, but I do have a request for everyone that's attending. I would like you to type I I I, I and then delete one I for each statement that that is true. So if you have heard about the Aryans or the Dravidians, delete one I. If you know what that theory states, delete the second I. If you believe in the theory itself, delete the third I. If not read at all about how it's evolved over the last 20 years or so, delete the last I, and now hit enter. Barth, can you let me know kind of what the results of that are? Or if everyone is not engaging, then that would be good to know too.
0: So we have mostly uh, one or two eyes coming in. Okay.
1: All right. So then this will be very, very interesting, because many of you believe in the theory, which also means we're going to t- we're we're not going to address it directly. But if I'm successful, you will start questioning your own beliefs. All right. Next slide. All right, today, kind of, we're going to cover a couple of things. But first and foremost, we're going to assume certain things, right? One of them is, uh, sorry, the key axiom. So these things, we're going to take as truths for the purposes of the next 50 minutes or so. One, the Veda are present in the earliest traceable evidence of our civilization. We don't have any proof. There's anything that existed before the Vedas that we still consider as part of our lineage. The other is that there is an unbroken tradition, going back to the earliest traces of the Vedas to today. These two are related to each other, but but they are important in the difference. We're gonna try to track our heritage to a definitive founding date. That's our objective for the day. And we're gonna do it taking a multifaceted approach. We'll look at comparative analysis across religions and civilizations. We'll look at the sciences, archeology, span archaeoastronomy. We'll look at technology, we'll look at scripture and scriptural development. So, so we'll take a, this multifaceted approach. It's something that's somewhat unique. Most people tend to argue along one of these lines. But it is important for us to look at it across all of them. Next slide. All right, comparing religions. This is an interesting thing because if you take 100 years as one religion year, and I'm just making the scale up, but it helps you understand where we sit relative to all the other major world religions. Sikhism would be five years old, Islam 14, Christianity 20, Buddhism, etc. 25, Zoroastrianism 26, Shintoism are in the late 20s, Judaism is the closest at 37. Well, we're the grandfather. Uh, Hindu dharma is the grandfather of all the religions at 80. This is really, really important. Because when people talk about parts of our religion being in common with any other religion, how do they figure out what's common and where is was the direction of flow of ideas? Let's take your relationship with your baby brother. Do I, How often is it? That, you're, that his ideas come and influence yours versus the other way around. This also exists when you start thinking about religions and where ideas have come and gone and how they flow. Now, nothing is quite exactly one way when it comes to the time spans we're talking about, but this is a generally true statement. Next slide. Now, we add a little bit more here, not just religions, looking at civilizations. Again, you've got a timeline here, and and for Harappa and the Gulf of Kambod, it's a little bit of a guess. Um, Newer findings date that civilization as even older. But similar argument holds. When you see something that, say, Sumerian, reflected in Indic civilization and the Harappan civilization, a logical question is which way did the idea flow did it go from samaria to the harappans or vice versa more likely than not it was vice versa going from harappa to the other civilizations now other than the greek civilization starting with the aegeans everyone else has gone away over time or they all had periods of dark ages where they lost a lot of the knowledge that they had, and some traces passed forward, probably without information about its legacy. I'll pause there for a second. Are there any questions so far?
0: Yes, there are some questions coming in, Krishnaji. So one question is, um, there's a popular belief among Hindus, chronologically, chronologically speaking, that there's no beginning or end to Hindu dharma. So then what is the importance of discussing the origins of Hindu dharma?
1: That is an absolute fair point. There is a popular belief that we have no beginning or end. or more precisely, the beginning came when Lord Krishna or Lord Shiva, depending on whoever, whichever lineage you follow, gave those teachings to the sun god, Surya Dev, and then it progressed from there onward. This happened before the start of time itself, which is why we call it having no beginning or end. Yet there is also an experience that we all have had or will have, which is in the popular discourse, where specific timeframes are attached to our religion and to our beliefs. Uh, Most folks raised their hand, or, or left me with one eye earlier on, saying they believe in the Aryan invasion theory. That theory states the Aryans brought Hinduism into India, and specifically they originated it, which is a definite start date to the start of our dharma. So, so this question itself is a little counterintuitive relative to the voting that, that we saw a little bit earlier.
0: So what you're saying is the importance in the historicity is what it implies for the, for the Hindu dharma more generally, and that's why it's important to discuss this topic. Exactly.
1: Now, the other reason it's important is this relates directly to our identity. We will go through and try to find our origins. But what I can confidently say now is anyone who gives you a date, including myself, either is a liar or hasn't done the research to the extent it needs to get done. And that's a blanket statement. doesn't matter who you go to. And that will be true today. We will go in time bound, at least at the upper end, or sorry, the lower end of our origins. But I can't describe a date and neither can anyone else. And we'll see why. Any other questions?
0: I had a question about um, the cultural transfers between the Sumerians, the Harpins, the Aegeans, and the Egyptians, the concurrent civilizations. How do we know that the cultural transfers mostly went from uh, the Harappan civilization to these other civilizations and not the other way around?
1: So there is not strong finding one way or the other, but the, the reason we put these slides together is it's important to understand the age difference relative to Hindu dharma and Indic civilization versus all of the other religions and all the other ancient civilizations. When you have a civilization and a dharma that is at least if not more than twice as old as everyone else that implies a certain flow of ideas. There may be some flow back but by and large that it tends to be one way accepted and then might be modified and come back which may or may not be accepted. And that's the reason I gave the example of all of the folks here are kind of somewhere between the 18 and 30 age range. If it's HSA, probably closer to 18 than to 30. How many of you have kids, um, brothers and sisters, that are 10 years or more younger than you? Or have experienced interacting with kids that are at least 10 years younger than you? If that interaction is more than cursory, then imagine and reflect, not imagine, reflect on your interactions and the flow of ideas. How many of the ideas come from you and go to the kids versus how many go from the kids and originate with the kids and come back to you on any serious topic other than what games are we playing today? And that, that is the relationship that Hindu dharma and Indic civilization has with the rest of the world.
0: a really the important other point, questions? there's one more question coming in. So uh, I think it's important for, uh, I guess, discussing the historicity of Hindu dharma is what exactly, or how exactly are you defining Hindu dharma? So we I,
1: we didn't skip this point, but I did cover it and I had, it has a general flavor of the definition of Hindu dharma. This deck does not go into creating a clean set of definitions. Um, that definition can span a book in and of itself. Um, you know, If we speak in very, very broad, overarching terms, then it is the dharma, also known as Sanatana Dharma, generally, historically accepted as having existed for at least several thousand years out of the broader subcontinent of India, and we'll leave it as that definition. We can expand it a little bit by saying it includes ancient civilizations based out of subcontinent of India. Um, The other piece I will include, it has some traces of continuity with the Vedic knowledge that was preserved and passed on into today's cultural practices that we all follow or at least know about through the modern name of Hindu religion or Hinduism.
0: Okay, I think that's all the questions we have for now, so we'll go back to your slides. Okay. All right,
1: go to the next slide. All right, so diving into archeology, span how many archeologists in the, in the chat?
0: There's a time lag, so I'll get some responses.
1: <laughs> all right, while well, the responses come in, I'm gonna assume it's zero, unless someone tells me otherwise. Uh, but the other asked question I will have is how many of you have heard, of you have heard this prayer? Ganga chayamana Godavari saraswati, narmada Sindhu kaveri, chalesmin karu. Or how many of you have heard about the gomela Specifically, it's reference as the Triveni Sangha, which means the meeting point of the Ganga, the Yamuna, and the Saraswati. The interesting thing is both of these are practices that exist today. And both of them refer to the Saraswati River, which until recently was considered mythological, is considered purely a deity that we worship because of its reference to the Devi that represents knowledge and education, but is something that scriptures discuss extensively. Uh, go to the next slide. Right. So when it comes to Saraswati and Shastra, the Rig Ved mentions it over 60 times as a mighty river flowing from the mountains to the sea. But the Mahabhara discusses it as a seasonal river that disappeared in the desert, and reappears in some places and joins the sea impetuously. This is also interesting, not just as references to a river in Shastra, but specifically the Rigveda is known to be significantly older than the Mahabharata. And what you see is a change in shape and character of the river between the two Shastras. The Rigveda also, by the way, refers to it as approximately a mile wide at places. So clearly a mighty river. Go on to the next slide. There's been quite a bit of research done. This is a satellite image that shows that it was more than seven kilometers wide at its peak. It started from the Himalayas and went to the sea and actually stopped flowing in continuity between 6,000 and 4,000 BC. And due to glacial changes, was completely dry by 1900 BCE. So when you put this in context with Shastra, you can actually see some of that continuity. What it also means is if we are talking about it at its widest, or when it was flowing completely, then you know that that document has to predate the 6,000 to 4,000 BC range. Otherwise, the authors would not have known about its breadth or about its continuous flow. It also assumes a couple of other things. They had to map the entire river for them to know that it was going from the mountains and the Himalayas to the sea in con- a continuous fashion. That implies some interest in geography and mapping and possibly hydrology. It also implies enough free time from hunting and gathering to go and do these sort of, you know, in some senses, non productive work. That implies a certain level of civilization and development of that civilization just to do something like this. Questions on the Saraswati? Uh,
0: nothing yet. So we'll right. go on.
1: Yep. All right, switching track. And by the way, this is going to be a frequent theme. We're going to be talking about each of these different topics for a handful of slides. So if you have questions, raise them early, raise them often. We'll selectively ignore you if you speak too much. So don't worry about that. Um, and if it comes in too late, that's okay too. We'll pause and go back. So when it comes to the up in Civilization, what's surprising is that it is largely aligned to the Saraswati River. When you look at all the dots on this map, it's approximately 2,600 sites covering half um, half a million square miles, which is roughly half the size of modern India today. Um, there have been four or five major cities that have been identified so far, each one old, bigger and broader than the last. Uh, go to the next slide. Um, but what is noticeable is if we go back to one of its earliest settlements, called Mehergarg. it is what It was a site and a city that was in continuous usage for at least 4,500 years old. In its earliest phases, people lived in mud-based four-bedroom houses, or four-room houses, sorry. They conducted farming, animal husbandry, and, believe it or not, dentistry. So there were a couple of uh, skeletons found from this early period. And the pictures you see are pictures of teeth, of specifically of molars that had cavities removed. So so everyone has gone to the dentist. I'm assuming everyone that's here and listening and watching has had cavities removed from some teeth. Now I can speak for myself, but I'd say it's probably fair to say I speak for everyone to say that none of us like going to the dentist. Now imagine going back in 6,000 B.C. to your local friendly dentist and be like, yeah, I want you to dig out these cavities in the back of my teeth, which are causing me a ton of pain. By the way, I'm going to sit while you go and do this. We also know that these people, after they had these cavities removed, lived for a number of years. What needs to happen for this? We need to be able to drill in precise ways and precise places In the back of your mouth, which has very limited visibility and very limited mobility, in doing something that is painful, especially if we don't have any sort of anesthesia, or you can believe they had anesthesia, uh, to go do this sort of work and probably needed filling, otherwise those tooth would not have lasted with a big gaping hole inside it for a number of years. So, is early Mehergarh the start of the Harappan civilization? Or is it an outpost of something that was even older? So, not an answered question, but something we have to consider. We don't normally see this level of precision, high-tech capability in early civilizations. Any slot, Any questions so far before we go on to the next topic?
0: Yes, there's one question. How do we show that Harappan civilization was Hindu versus what some academics call Dravidian? So this is again, going back to your earlier point about the Aryan invasion theory. Can you please provide some, some points for people who want to sort of argue this out?
1: Absolutely, can you go on to the next slide? I
0: don't remember if I discussed it here.
1: Uh, yes, okay, good. Um, perfect timing for that question. So, more about the Harappans. They had planned cities, north and south streets, typically west of a river, which all follow directions on construction and the stop at the Ayurveda, which is a document that we still have today. They also followed, those houses in those cities also followed Vastu Shastra. The doors faced deep, the, they had bathrooms and a kitchen, they had understreet sewers, they had water conservation, and yeah, they had yoga. Um, there are about a hundred other seals I've only included literally three topics here um, that also reflect practices of hindu dharma that continue today, but were etched in seals like the ones here uh, that connect the two. So, for example, women part their hair and put sindur on their heads. That's reflected. Yogic poses are reflected. Um, the swastika is found on some seals. There, there are a lot of different connections. Now, keep in mind for those that question, uh, not in the present audience, but especially among academics, I like question the Hindu civilization roots with the Harappans. They also posit that the Vedas came afterwards as part of the Aryan invasion, Aryan migration, or the spread of Indo-European languages. They also position that the quote-unquote Dravidian civilization as a juxtaposition to the Aryan civilization. When you look at what is here, that, that connection, that, that, that split of the two becomes tenuous at best. But when it comes to the Harapins, um, and the reason the slide is here is actually not, not to answer that question, but to look at what they did. So they weren't building sprawling cities that happened to come together, but they were building planned cities some 6,000, or I guess 6,000 B.C., 8,000 years ago. Not only were they building planned cities, but they had indoor bathrooms and kitchens. And they had sewers that were under the street, not open sewers like you can see in India today in many cities and many parts of the world. These things require a civilization to be fairly developed, to have a certain level of technology. Um, Again, not things you expect in a civilization that's in, in infancy as people are coming out of hunting and gathering into farming and building farming communities. So with most civilizations, as we showed earlier, the beginning date refers to the start of that civilization, which starts with with early agricultural communities slowly coalescing into cities, into urban civilizations. With the Harappans, what we have evidence of is not that transition from aggregarian agri- life into urban civilization. What we have evidence of is urban civilization. We are missing that early, early phase of the movement of the agrarian community into urban civilization. Any other follow-on questions?
0: Uh, none so far.
1: Okay. Next slide. All right. In that comparison of civilizations, I mentioned the Gulf of Cambod findings. Uh, this was mentioned. This was uh, brought into the news a number of years ago, uh, but not a lot. Kind of follow-on work has been done insofar as published findings that I've been able to find. But they what they did find it was in the Gulf of Cambodia. A submerged city that was roughly dated to 11,000 BC, roughly sized five miles by two miles, so 10 square miles in total, with human presence as far back as 29,000 BC. All of those numbers are mind-boggling. Today, we don't have any evidence, any accepted, broadly accepted evidence of urban civilization that goes that far. The earliest evidence that we all agree on is the Harappans. 10 square miles is huge. Earliest human presence being 29,000 BC is mind boggling in and of itself. No one, no other civilization can, can claim to trace that far. But if we think about what I just talked about in terms of the Harappan civilization being a fairly mature urban civilization then this date doesn't seem that far-fetched, not so much as the date, but the time period that it represents. If it took a number of thousands of years for the civilization to coalesce from hunting and gathering to agrarian society to an urban civilization, develop the technology necessary to go and start planning an urban civilization and having standardized planned infrastructure, and that date doesn't seem so bad. Questions or
0: comments on this? Yeah, really quickly, I wanted to ask, are there any specific, um, I guess, findings, archeological specifically connecting um, these Gulf of Combat findings to Harappa? Uh,
1: No, there are not. Um, But that's because there hasn't been a lot of things recovered. So the place that where the civilization was found um, is a particularly tumultuous part of the ocean where, where, this, where all the water bodies are meeting and churning, which makes it really hard to do anything. In addition, a lot of this was using um, sonography. Uh, there were some samples like door pillars and things like that that were collected, but a lot of work remains to be done. But it is, a, you know, whether you consider it a part of the Herupins or you consider it a precursor to Harappan civilization, it speaks to their Indic civilization having an older past than the Harappans. And it speaks to the timeline of what we see in the Harappan civilization itself.
0: Albeit uh, indirectly. Yeah, so there's a question coming in about the the research done on Dwarka. So I'm guessing that that's gonna come up later in your presentation?
1: Uh, We actually don't talk about Dwarka in the presentation. Um, Dwarka, as we understand it, and the city we we talk about, and specifically Beir Dwarka, is the seventh building of Dwarka, which means Dwarka has been built and destroyed seven times. We do not know where each of those previous occurrences were. Did they move the city? Did they rebuild in the same spot? There's just a lot of work to be done. Um, one of the conjectures are is the the findings in Gulf of Kambat was one of the original cities of Dwarka, but again, unproven and conjecture at best. Okay. Next slide. All right, we're gonna switch tracks um, into astronomy. So I have to talk about five different things, um, uh, terms in archaeology in astronomy, and we'll talk about them again. So, so if you don't retain it, that's okay. Uh, the first is equinox, as being a point in the year when the day and night are equal. Uh, that means 12 hours each. This happens twice a year. A tropical year is the time between equinoxes. The precession refers to the wobble of the Earth as it spins about its axis. Hopefully all of you know that one, um, that the Earth doesn't spin perfectly. It literally spins like like a top. Proper motion refers to the movement of stars in the night sky relative to other stars in its vicinity. So if you look up in the night sky, you'll see stars. Uh, If you watch them over a long period of time and chart their course, you can see them move and change relative to each other. That's what's referred to as proper motion. And the perihelion refers to the point of closest approach between the Earth and the Sun. Um, We don't go have kind of early models of the solar system show us all moving in circles around the Sun. Um, More sophisticated models shared kind of in college show that it isn't quite that simple. And we all, all the planets have somewhat oval shapes of their orbit um, with there being a close and a far point relative to the sun. So that is referred, the closest point there is referred to as the perihelion. Next slide. Um, So I know all of you are sitting in front of your computer screens, but what I'd like you to do stick your hand out and, th- and put your thumb up as if you were giving someone a thumbs up sign and raise it up towards the sky and then look at your thumb and specifically look at your thumbnail. The distance it takes for a star to move from one end of the thumb to another in the sky is a sixth of a degree, which is roughly the distance covered by your thumb. Human eyes really cannot look at and be more accurate than a sixth of a degree when it comes to mapping the night sky and movement of stars. Now, we have to make a couple of assumptions, and then we'll go challenge those assumptions. One, when it comes to looking at the, the dating of each of these terms that we, sorry, the sizing of each of the terms we just talked about. To get there, you need to observe the night sky every night over a number of lifetimes. Now, I'm not referring to being reborn and continuing your previous profession from your previous birth, but I'm referring to multi-generational record keeping. That means I'm going to go observe and spend my entire life basically observing the night sky and then handing it over to people younger than me to continue doing the same. Now, before we get into the kind of the work that was done, you also have to understand something about the civilization that could have people. Literally spend their entire life looking at something like the night sky. Feels like a pretty useless economic endeavor to me. But if there is sufficient wealth in a society, they can afford to have some people doing this sort of work. Again, that speaks to an agrarian society or something more uh, more urban. But an excess of wealth, which allows you to invest in this way, versus all the other ways that you could invest. Lake roads. Um, next slide. So, the tropical year. So, this is an illustration of a tropical year. And specifically, when you look at this period, the Surya Siddhanta, which is a date that which is a text rock dated roughly 2000 years ago, provides a date, uh, sorry, a period of the tropical year being 365.2435374 days. Modern science in the year 2000 dated it pretty close to that date, 365.2421897 days. The difference, and I'm gonna stop reading all these decimal points, but but a difference is roughly two minutes. Now, if you look up at the diagram, the other noticeable thing is the little plus 0.0053s per year. And that S stands for seconds. And this is also the reason why I gave a date in terms of the year 2000 relative to modern science's dating of the tropical year, is that the tro- the period of the tropical year changes by, by 0.0053 seconds every single year. What that can mean a couple of things. The Surya Siddhanta in its authorship was actually correct at the time of its authoring. or they were really off, but really, really close to what it is today. Either way, to, to observe this sort of thing using the naked eye and multi-generation record keeping would require 10,000 years of observation and multi-generational record keeping. Can you imagine the sheer boring life that these people had and the sheer excess of wealth a society had to be able to invest in 10,000 years of non-productive life. Questions on astronomy so far? All right, next slide. We'll continue. All right, so measuring the earth's precession. Remember I said precession refers to the wobble of the earth? So Surya Siddhanta also has a, a measure of the wobble. And that, I can't read the, um, read the slide here, but you should be able to read it on full screen. But the key thing here is the Surya Siddhanta's measure was actually really, really close to the measurement of modern science. Again, to measure it requires 3,600 years of observation, but only after you've measured the proper motion of stars, the perihelion, and the tropical year, all three of which was done. So together, add on another 10,000 years of unaided observation for this level of precision. So we're now at roughly 20,000 years of measurement and investment by a society. Next slide. All right, so what is this magical text of Surya Siddhanta I keep referring to? Um, When it comes to common dating, and common as in broadly speaking, this is what people say, I'm not referring to the accuracy of the dating, but just broadly speaking, people assumed it was authored in 300 AD or um, CE, common era based on the linguistics in the text itself. It also assumes naked eye observation. So these the authors were documenting and summarizing observations over a very long period of time. Now there has to be, now there has a couple of options we can go, either we can say, okay, if, if we believe naked eye observations, we believe 300 AD, then the start of that observation period is sometime between 20,000 and 10,000 BCE as the start period. It also assumes that the records are passed down from astronomer to astronomer over this fairly lengthy period of time. The other option we can take is to say, hey, their data is 100% accurate, but they didn't do it via the naked eye. Okay, but then the implication is again 20,000 BCE because the text talks about dates, or sorry, about events And provides dating for those so either way no matter which way we go we run into a conundrum that all the dating based on this one text defies anything around the Aryan invasion that we've learned about any questions comments anyone starting to question their own beliefs
0: We'll see if um, those questions come in. Um, one thing I did want to ask was, how is, um, so I guess, how specifically do, do we link the, um, the dates to the actual um, text? Uh, can you
1: clarify the question? I'm not sure I understand.
0: Sure, sure. So so in this particular case, how do we see um, like 19, 19, 592 BC, for example, as the actual dating from the events that are mentioned? Um, are those are those events translated to astronomical events that we can then sort of back out? That's correct.
1: That's absolutely correct. That's normally how Indian text date is by referencing astronomical phenomena. Okay.
0: Okay. I'll go to the next slide.
1: All right. All right. So nakshatras. This is how we specifically refer to astronomical phenomenon. Now, a couple of things to know about nakshatras, that they're based on a cycle of 27 and encompass 25,675 years. In other words, each nakshatra lasts 955 years. Now, the nakshatras themselves are dependent on the location of the earth relative to the sun and the stars. But when you look at the night sky, we'll talk about this nakshatra existing at this time that obviously changes now the other thing to keep note of and this is why we talked about the influence of ideas is we have the nakshatras nakshatras that are defined in the veda we have those that are used by hindu and indian astrologers today and then we have a similar concept that is used by the greeks and there's discussion of this entire thing being influenced and originating with the greeks view of the of the stars this is a question of belief. No one has gone through and actually found references to the original use of nakshatras by the Greeks, but we know it exists here in the Rig Veda, which is what we're gonna be using. Next slide. All right, when we talk about astronomy in the Rigveda, Veda, and this is the reason we, we talk about this, is there's a bunch of dates that are referred to in the Rigved and the Yajurved. When you look at it, you look at the last time these things occurred, as per the best archaeoastronomy software we have, often we cite NASA as, as the expert here, but you'll notice something very peculiar. Why does the Yajurved, which is less old than the Rigved, refer to an event that predates the oldest known event in the Rigved? And this goes to what we started talking about very, very early in this discussion, which is the fact that the Veda existed and was recompiled from time to time. So what we consider to be the oldest Veda, the Dig Veda, may not actually be the oldest. Again, the difficulty in dating is because of these sort of interleavings of knowledge.
0: Next slide. Uh, So sorry, before we go on, there's some questions that are coming in, do you mind if I just close them? Great, so um, one question is that um, Nilesh Oak sets the the date of the Mahabharata, the 6th millennium BCE, um, based on uh, the uh, astronomical references in the Mahabharata. What are your thoughts on that particular date? So
1: I have heard his talks on YouTube, and I think he makes a forceful argument supporting his dates. I'm not an expert on the Mahabharata, but what I do know is that his dating is not accepted by a lot of people that are experts. So what we have left, and really for him, is to continue pushing his argument till it becomes mainstream among, uh, among in the, um, what I would say is emic um, scholars.
0: Yes. Um, and what is the, what is the current consensus?
1: I guess right now. Uh, the, the consensus itself is being challenged. So it's kind of hard to give a date, mm-hmm. but a lot of people refer to roughly 3,500 BC as a date, Nile and there are a smaller group of people that have a similar date, for example, Professor Ajah that are in that 5,000 BC range.
0: Okay. And then another question coming in for the previous slide, which is what does it mean for a nakshatra to last 955 years? Does it mean so, that the stars physically cease to exist?
1: No, so, so this is not about the existence of the stars themselves. Stars measure life, their own lifetimes in the scope of billions of years. But it refers to the specific arrangement of stars as is visible to us from Earth, and in this case from India, over a period of time. So the constellations as we see them now will have existed over its total period for roughly 955 years. At that point, they will transition. And so this is a continuous transition. It's not like the next day, like the night sky is totally changed. But the nakshatras themselves have elapsed and changed into the next nakshatra, the next set of constellations we see over a period of time. And those periods are measured as 955 years.
0: Okay. And another question that has just come in is, is there, so based on the slide, is there an academic consensus that the Yajur Veda is newer than the Rig Veda, or is this based on a general Hindu consensus? This is based on a general Hindu
1: consensus. Um, as far as I can tell, there is a general academic consensus that the Rig Veda is the oldest Veda. But that is not an emic consensus, that is just a general academic consensus. Um, you may or may not know there, there is a big debate in kind of between scholars of emic versus edic. So inside, emic is insiders and edic is outsiders trying to understand this topic. And there is no consensus between two of them on any of these topics by and large. But we don't have a consistent emic perspective on the dating of the Vedas relative to each other either. So what this slide does is really challenge Mm-hmm. anyone that states a specific way of seeing the Vedas. I see.
0: Okay. okay. And then one more question, going back to the point about the nakshatra. Mm-hmm. Um, if the old nakshatras have ceased to be in human sight, do we rename new nakshatras Ashwini, Bharani, etc.?
1: Uh, well, the nakshatras are all named. So... We may choose to rename them if we want to, but, but they've been named and they're cyclical and that they come back. Um, so I'm not sure how to answer that question. I mean, we could if we wanted to. To, to me, in the context of this conversation and context of this presentation, what's interested, interesting is those nakshatras were defined and named in the period of the Rig Veda. So, how exactly did they map the night sky spanning 25,000 years? into periods of 955.
0: One final question. I I think it's good audience engagement is is high at this point in the presentation. Um, Is it possible that all four of the Vedas existed at the same time um, rather than having been composed linearly? Or do we Uh, have actual evidence that the Rigveda is is older? I guess this is uh, related to the previous question. Yes, Uh,
1: when I started the presentation, uh, I referred to one of the things we'll believe is about the Veda and not about the Rig or Yajur, etc. Is because we believe that the knowledge contained in the Veda is eternal. We also mm-hmm. know that knowledge was recompiled many times over history. The last recompilation happened by Maharishi Vyasa, which was the time when he split the Veda into four documents for the purposes of Kali Yoga. So, so the answer to that question is, we know that they were part of a holistic single document that were split. Now, please use accept the term document as a very loosely de- devised term because this is an oral tradition that at some point was written down. And the oral tradition is significantly older than the written tradition. So I'm using the term document loosely to describe the the knowledge encompassed um, cumulatively across all of that as the Veda, as a document.
0: Okay, great. Um, yeah. So really quickly, Krishnaji, could you, um, for pre, uh, like future questions, could you um, put your camera on so that we can see you while you're answering the questions? Oh,
1: sorry, I didn't realize I had to switch it.
0: No problem. Okay, And I think that's all the questions we have right now. So we will all right. move on.
1: All right, so astronomical dating, um, and, and to those of you that follow Nele Ashok, he actually has a reasonable amount of work from what I can tell to, to answer some of the things here. But by and large, when you look at, um, okay, by and large, when you look at astronomical dating and specifically looking at uh, the Nakshatra patterns that, that we talked about earlier, and we take an example of something from the Rigveda, and this is a cursory look, not an exhaustive study. But but when we talk about the vernal equinox, it being in Megashira, well, it happens in every single um, nakshatra. So if it ha- but the last time it happened was in Shatapisha nakshatra, then it happened in Megashira, which is what's mentioned in the Rigveda. Uh, sorry, sorry, I, I messed that up. It happened in Megashira, but then Megashita happened 25,000 years prior to that. Now, the gap between occurrences is roughly 7,600 years um, between the vernal equinox being mentioned between those two periods. I'm butchering the slide and I apologize. Um, but, but when it comes to the cyclic tradition, um, cyclic translation of the nakshatras, what you end up with is an inner limit and an outer limit of the period for a specific occurrence to have repeated. When you look at that, then you have to say, well, if all the astronomical signs repeat, then you need either a non-astronomical point of reference to get to a reasonable end, or you need to correlate with enough other astronomical points of reference to get to uh, not 25,000, but a multiple there that is so large that it can be discounted immediately. Most people, when they go and do this math and try to solve it, they assume an N of 1 because they believe 25,000 years is already too old. What we have shown so far is something older than 25,000 years ago is actually reasonable. So at a minimum, the N you have to accept can be as high as 2. Go to the next slide. All right, now comes the fun part. Um, so Ramayana, this is totally in in the spirit of of the Aryan invasion theorists. So that Ramayana is actually really really hard to date. It contains a ton of astronomical details. It refers to itself as having occurred in the Treta Yuga. Valmiki himself is referred to in the Yajurveda, which means that at some point he had to have existed and be known to the authors of the Yajurveda as we've received it today and interestingly does not talk to the Saraswati river. It also mentions three very interesting types of people. Rama is referred to as a Manusha or a human being, Hanuman which is referred to as a vanur, and Jamvant which is referred to as a reach. Uh, Next slide. So I'm not positing a theory, but, but at the same time, this is a little bit tongue-in-cheek and entirely plausible. Uh, when we look at a chart of various Homo species, um, this, this chart comes from Discovery Magazine, which is a scholarly magazine. And they did a bunch of work trying to figure out when our predecessors existed. Now, when you look at this, the first thing you'll notice is Homo erectus existed for about two million years, and it coex Homo erectus coexisted with two other species: Ardipithecus um I, I said that wrong, but but australopithecus. And then Homo antecessor. Um, australopithecus was kind of at the tail end of its existence, and Homo antecessor was a relatively short-lived species, but if the Ramayana happened and three coexisting er- humanoid species existed, that seems like a reasonable period for it to have happened if we believe in Treta Yuga at all. Um, and if that's the case, those descriptions seem to fit, then, the, then on the left are artist, artist depictions of those three species. Kind of matches how we think about it on the left is um, a antecessor. In the middle is Homo erectus. And on the right is a Bosai. Does that make Ramayran having happened a million years ago? Roughly 1.2 million years ago. So I say this is level of scholarship is not that far from those that propose the Aryan invasion theory. Obviously, they've put a lot more work into this than I have but it raises a really good question.
0: Next slide. Can I ask a really quick question before? Yep. Um, so uh, have there been attempts to date the Iron based on the discovery of the bridge um, that i Setu transversing uh, India to Sri Lanka?
1: Not that I'm aware of, but there are challenges to that bridge between India and Sri Lanka, um, being between India and Lanka Ram Iron. Uh, there are people that conjecture that Lanka of the Ramayan time frame is actually different from Sri Lanka because the distance that um, Hanuman had to jump is significantly greater than the distance between India and Lanka and Sri Lanka. All right, next slide. Mm-hmm. All right, Mabharat. So so this is, again, we have to look at Mahabharata and try to see if there's coincidence with archaeological evidence, but notice that there are at least 140 astronomical references, and we also know that Dwarga exists as something that's submerged, and we found at least a seal mentioning the Mahabharata, and apparently it was built on land reclaimed for the sea. We know it refers to the Saraswati as a seasonable river, seasonal river, uh dating is used the latest dating is roughly 1900 bc so it had to pre-exist typically in that either 3000 or 5500 bc depending on who you believe so so all of this is well known and understood however if you go to the next slide there's a challenge to to, all right we're uh we are missing a slide hold on i will read this to you one second um let me see all right so, so we don't have this here but but let me let me challenge this a little bit one of the interesting things about the Mahabharat is during the war itself after the killing of dronacharya his son launches what can best be described as a nuclear weapon uh, it's the pramashira astra against arjun the description of its impact what happened specifically, as translated by Kishori Mohan Ganguly in the 1800s, can best be described as what happened in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, but significantly greater in terms of destruction, destructive capabilities. It killed a quarter of a million people, one Akshahoni of, of army. But there were two other things that happened. One is it was launched point blank at Arjun, but he survived. And in fact, his rata survived. And then the first thing that Arjun did afterwards is he launched the Pramastra, which cleaned the after effects. It was not used in an offensive manner. So when you take these specific facts that we just talked about, the Mahabharata, but combined it with a weapon such as that, then it makes you question what we know about Mahabharata and specifically the technology that they demonstrated. Now, the significance of Kishori Mohan Ganguly translating it is he did it in the 1800s when there was no knowledge of nuclear weapons. But if you read that description, you can't but help make a connection. So there, while Nileshok has an interesting um, dating, he hasn't connected all the dots necessary to, to bring everything together on the date that he's presenting. Next slide. All right, some other fun things. Um, this is a rata from Mahabharat, and this is typically how it's displayed um, in any sort of common discussion on a rata. Now, if you go to the next slide, hmm. how would you think about the Ferrari being a Vidyutrata? By the way, Vidyutrata is a powered vehicle that's referred to in the Rigveda. Next slide. What about the Jalayan being an amphibious aircraft, or the Kara, which is an amphibious vehicle, or Tritala being a three-storied vehicle, or a Vidyut, being a powered vehicle? So we can go on and on, but these are vehicles that were defined and discussed in the rigveda with things that look and feel like the same thing as we know them today. Makes you question what sort of technology they had or what sort of imagination they had back then when they were writing or discussing and creating the Rig Now, another thing to understand um, is the human imagination is limited by access to technology. What that means is if you are life deals with sticks and stones if you're using spears for hunting you as a person with an imagination could not imagine the after effects of a nuclear explosion or life on mars it is not possible within the realms of how our brains work so if these people are ancestors were coming up with these sort of things discussed in detail, then they must have had access to a certain level of technology that allowed them to imagine these things. Next slide. So other things that the DigVaid talks about. The Earth being round and in a solar orbit. Specifically, the sun does never set nor rise. When people think the sun is setting, it is not so. For hafting arrived at the end of the day, it makes itself produce two opposite effects, making night to what is below and day to what is on the other side. Again, you can read the rest of it yourself, but they understand the heliocentric model of the solar system clearly. By the way, they also understand and have developed error correcting codes and encryption. Those are modern terminology to things that existed back then and were used to transmit the Vedas to us today orally without, with very, very limited change. Um, I'm sure everyone has played a game of telephone at some point in their life. The game of telephone doesn't, doesn't end up with a message being received after going around the room in a way that resembles the original message. Now we're talking about complex, lengthy text being Brad. Hello. All right, Barth. Can you still see me and hear me?
0: Uh, your video isn't showing us. So I can hear you.
1: All right. Um, so I had to switch devices, but um, what you have here is a civilization that found a way to to communicate across long, long periods of time. Uh, go to the next slide. All right. Um, before we go, time check. We're we're at the hour mark. Um, should we keep going? Should we stop?
0: So it looks like we only have seven slides of actual material left. So I think we can maybe just wrap up quickly and then have questions at the end.
1: All right, so so other examples of science in the Puranas. They talk about Vimanas, their construction, how to fly them, et cetera. They have the concept of twinkling lights in the night sky being stars like the sun. They measure the speed of light at approximately 186,000 miles an hour. They measure the age of the earth and discuss it in terms of four billion years they understand the relativity of time akin to how einstein talks about it they understand the impact of the moon's tides uh, moon's phases on tides etc 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 all of these things require a certain level of sophistication that frankly we're not willing to give um credence to to our ancestors dating five seven ten twenty thousand years ago now one of the axioms that well, that we took was all of these things were developed without the aid of technology now let's challenge that axiom either we assume that they had a period of time sufficient to go develop all of these things in which case we have to give them credit for that time having existed in the course of their civilization. So we're talking more than 10 to 30,000 years, or we assume that they had technology, in which case we have to give them credit to having time to develop that technology, or we assume that they meditated and they received this knowledge through the divine. If that's the case, then, well, we better all change professions and learn how to do that because it seems like it's a better answer to whatever we're doing today. And with that, I will wrap and open up to any questions.
0: Sorry, I was muted. I was going to say, um, someone's asked. Can you comment on the ecological references in the Ramayana and the other texts?
1: Um, what specifically are you referring
0: to? So I think I think the idea is uh, there's references to specific land formations and specific forests, for example, in the Ramayana.
1: Mm-hmm. Also true
0: of the Mahabharata.
1: Yep. So so there is extensive discussion in all of the itihasas about what places were considered holy, what are the geographical landmarks, what are the flora, fauna, etc. All of those things are discussed in a way you normally don't expect out of a storybook. You don't see that level of description uh, description in the Iliad, for example. So either you assume that there is a historical basis for them or people had wild imaginations and no real understanding of what's legitimate in a story. If you assume that there's historical basis, then it becomes interesting to go try to figure out how much of that remains today and can we recreate the journeys that that people in the Mahabharata and the Ramayana took, the Pandavas and Bhagwan Ram, for example, in his Vinvas. People have, I know for a fact, that people have tried to recreate his journey, um, Bhagwan Ram's journey from the Ramayana, Based on what evidence they can see, um, as exists in India today. And they have been able to go do this. So there is some historical basis for these things having actually existed.
0: Okay. And what do you, are you aware of any attempts that have been made to try to date based on these? For example, if there's references to certain plants or Certain form, land formations, like for example, with the Saraswati River, um, with with respect to the Vedas, has there been any similar attempt with that Um, So
1: I know that there are attempts to da- to date that Iron, but there are not a lot of good anchor points in history to, to base it on. Um, and kind of this cross topical, cross um, cross area of study type of dating has not uh, reached any level of consensus in the academic community.
0: Okay. So going, going back, there was a previous question that was asked, um, regarding the dating of the Ramayan from a previous slide, uh, which is, so there's, there's a lot of things that we know about the early humanids is from their skulls. Right. Um, and one of the things that we know is that, uh, the cavity that the brain was located in was tended to be smaller um so doesn't this give evidence for a smaller brain more limited brain function that would rule out uh a dating of the online back to 1.2 billion bil- years ago
1: uh, that would assume that there is a direct reprovable relationship between the size of the brain casing and the size of the brain and the size of the brain and the functions that and the level of cognitive reasoning that it would allow um and that it can't be enhanced. None of those things have been tangibly proven. The size of the brain casing, the size of the brain is a conjecture that that is well accepted as well. It can't be bigger than the space in your head. Um, but in terms of cognitive function, we have a long ways to go in terms of mapping w- cognitive function relative to the size of even our own brains, much less our antecessors.
0: OK, that's a really good answer. So, um, another question that I think is, um, a little bit more fundamental, big picture is what is it about Hindu Dharma that is conducive to scientific and mathematical discoveries, like the speed of light, astronomy, et cetera. And why are these, uh, discoveries specifically Hindu and not Indian in a more general sense?
1: Yeah. So, so that's a really, really good question. Uh, the big thing to understand is Hindu Dharma, broadly speaking, states that the reality as we see it is temporary and the only reality that exists is the supreme the concept of Mitya, for example really refers to something that's temporary not something that's fake or false and if you assume it's temporary but the only thing that's real that's permanent is the supreme then everything that's temporary is a part of that supreme thing even if it is there temporally. Then, studying what is around us becomes studying the Supreme in and of itself. Therefore, understanding the universe around us helps us understand the Supreme. That's the fundamental thing that connects us into other topics that we'd consider separate from religion. If you look at Europe, how many people were hung, or killed, or burned at the stake for following things that we now call science, back then were called philosophy. Because it challenged the Bible or it challenged the predominant faith of the area, we were never dogmatic about these things. We were open. We said, "Help us, um, help us learn around what's around us, so we can use it." And a little bit of guesswork here, but my understanding is all of these things were reflected back into the practices in and of themselves. What that means was when you had to go build a yagna shala, for example. The specific shape of that yajna shala depended on the specific yagna that you were doing or a specific outcome that you were trying to achieve it was really really important that the yajna shala had to be built precisely when you look at something like the Sutra, it's a construction manual on how to build yajna shalas and they talk about various different values of Pi depending on the level of precision required for the construction of that specific altar within which the context of Pi is shared. Similarly, when you look at the other topics, they didn't go and try to figure out the speed of light for the sake of trying to find the speed of light. It was actually helpful for them to go do something else that helped their spiritual upliftment. That case is seen over and over and over again throughout Shastra. Does that help answer the question?
0: Yeah. I think so. I think so. Um, and then we have another question coming in, actually a couple of questions. So one question is what happened? We talked a little bit earlier about the drying up of the Saraswati river. So Mm -hmm. what happened because of the drying up of the Saraswati river? Is it true that due to its drying up, uh, people who we would call Vedic traveled westward towards like Iran, Syria, um, you know, there's the text called the Avesta, which um, is from the Iranian yep. tradition, which is said to be very similar to the Vedas. So is that something that we think perhaps happened as a result of the with the river drying up? Yeah, so
1: that's a really good question. There's not a consensus on the direction of travel of the Vedic people. Um, the Edic perspective is they came from outside. This is the Aryan invasion theory, the Aryan migration theory, the spread of Indo-European languages. The countervening theory is, well, it all started in India and then went out westward. Again, there's no consensus on that. There are a lot of gaps, and the scholars need to go continue to work to go build that theory up. Um, But what is understood is regardless of whether those people moved westward, we know they didn't come from outside to India, but we also know that those people did move eastward. That's not to say they didn't go westward, but they certainly moved eastward to the Gangetic Plains, so the Ganga, if you will. Uh, That part is known and well understood.
0: Um, uh, one question for me. So we talked a little bit earlier about um, the form of technology that's discussed in the in the Vedas and other texts. So the question from from my end is if if these highly Um, I guess what we think of as advanced or modern technologies existed so many thousands of years ago. Why don't we see, I guess, um, prototypes based on that continuing further on to a time period when they could have been recorded or from which we would still have remnants left over today?
1: Um, That's a really good question. So one of the things we have to give credit to anything, if we assume that line of reasoning, then you have to give period a a time period for which that technology to decay to the point that it's no longer visible to us directly. Again, that's something that people don't do when they consider dating. But we do have evidence of certain things continuing. Um, Bathrooms being inside houses, underground enclosed sewage systems, kitchens being inside, right? In the US 200 years ago, uh, there was a concept of an outhouse which is where your bathroom was. You did not want your bathroom inside the house because it consisted of a pit that got more and more sophisticated over time. Eventually, about 100 years ago, we started building sewer systems in the US. We had sewer systems in 3000, 5000 BC in India. The concept of planning and city planning existed back then, exists today. Vastu, Shastra, Tapati Ayurveda, those things exist today. The way temples are built follow the way things were described back in the Harappan period. Now, we don't have evidence of direct linkage to nuclear weapons, to flying aircraft that are 5,000 years old. There had to be a period of decay to account for it. What we know is after the Mahabharat, a lot of technology was lost. That's described in the Mahabharata itself at the end of it, with, with the mass destruction that was involved in, in, in the killing off of a lot of people. We also know that during, the, during Ashoka, he destroyed a lot of centers of learning, specifically around warfare. So again, a lot of knowledge was lost. We know in the last 800 years that India has been excluding the last 70 or so, that there is a lot of warfare between invaders, um, Islamic invaders, and the Indian people that resulted in widespread loss of knowledge and institutions of learning and teachers and documents. So we have what we have, there is more that comes up in terms of documents that resurface, but we also don't have a steady detailed study. Um, Last thing I'll leave on this question is I don't know how many of you have heard of the Arjun main battle tank that India developed some 10 or 15 odd years ago. What you may or may not know is it has something called reactive battle armor. Uh, This is something that was developed in the last 40 or 50 years. But basically, the way tanks work and tank metallurgy works, when, when a shell comes and hits a tank, it doesn't actually explode on impact. It spins. And as spinning, it drills into the armor and then blows up. What that does is make a much more penetrating explosion that has higher likelihood of the tank blowing up. What reactive battle armor does is on impact, the way the metallurgy happens, as it, as the tank shell spins, before it's able to drill, the tank armor actually explodes. And the tank armor exploding forces the shell to miss time and explode outside where it's the most optimal. This is a little bit of arcane technology around tank armor, but in India is the only fourth country in the world to go develop this. And it was developed based on metallurgy in the Atharva which is a connection very few people know of.
0: Well, that is amazing. I, we had, no, I had no idea. Um, I knew about the tank, but I had no idea that, that it had that connection. Um, one more question that's coming in. Uh, this is uh, relevant, I guess, today because of all the, um, I guess, research that's being done uh, with respect to the RNA invasion theory that's genetic in nature. So mm-hmm. the question is, um, do you have thoughts on the genetics discussion, complex research such as the R1A gene, et cetera? how reliable is genetics in determining which way people flowed thousands of years ago?
1: Yeah, so I have not followed in detail the the genetics discussions. Frankly, I rely on the scholars to go and figure it out and come up to some level of consensus. What we do know is despite all the genetic findings, something that was known as the Aryan invasion theory has devolved into the Aryan uh, migration theory, has devolved further into the spread of Indo-European languages. As a consensus on that realm. Now, the, the summarize, kind of the the spread of Indo-European languages basically doesn't say that there was an invasion of Aryans. It doesn't say that Aryans came and settled in mass into India. It says some random people came, they started sharing their language and wonderful literature, and, and oh my God, the Indians were so dumb and, and so in awe of this thing that was coming on that they wholesale adopted those ideas and those languages and transmitted them across the Indian continent. Um, I'm being a little bit provocative in my language, but that's essentially what it says. And we'll continue to see this this conversation go further down this trajectory as more and more studies happen and more and more things come out and receive some level of consensus. Okay,
0: wow. Um, and so one other question that's been posted is, um, if at last 2000, 2,000 years ago, Vedic folks knew that the procession of the equinoxes takes about 24,000 years. Wouldn't that mean that they would have existed like at the beginning of that procession?
1: That is my conjecture as well, which is why I bring it up. Uh, How can they know about all the different formations and specifically how long each of those nakshatras last if they don't?
0: And they would have had to record it everything over those twenty-four thousand. Yes.
1: as well the only other way they would have known if they were not observing is through aided observations which i said you have to give them time to go develop super powerful telescopes and the wealth and infrastructure necessary to support that or they meditated and they received the knowledge from the divine in which case like i said we should reconsider our collective professions <laughs>
0: So um, Krishnaji, I think we're, we're out of time uh, and also out of questions, but before we go, would you like to just give a quick plug for um, Hindupedia so that our, some of our um, viewers who are here can have a resource to go to if they have any questions or any information that they want to, um, you know, learn more about Hindu Dharma from.
1: Sure, so, so go to www.hindupedia.com. Um, everything we publish in the online cyclopedia is available online as soon as we publish it. Um, it is something that's available as a resource to the community, it is not open for editing by anyone, um, and does maintain academic level rigor in its content. What that means is you can refer to it as a primary source, or sorry, as a, I guess technically a tertiary source, but you can you can directly cite Hindupedia as an authority in your own research if you're writing a paper. About 50 or so academic papers reference Hindupedia um, we, on our advisory board a Swami of who is the trustee of the Acharya Sabha, and Swami Dayanandji was on our advisory board, Talis Samadhi. Uh, we have an editorial board of three people, Dr. David Fro- David Frawley, or Vamadev Shastri, um, who is an expert in Ayurveda, uh, Swamini Sadvidyanan Saraswati, who is a disciple of Swami Dayanandji and an expert in Vedanta, and Shianil Bhanort is the founder of the UK and the Hindu Council. Um, we have um, paid staff that that works to develop content as well as edit and publish d- um, donated content to, to us that we make available to everyone at large. We're um, viewed and used roughly by about, I want to say, seventy to 80,000 people a month. Um, and we have received kind of... Anecdotal information that it's used by people who are preparing presentations on India or primarily Hinduism at the collegiate level. It's used to create and you define um, curricula, and it is used for lectures and temples on on whenever their functions are. So that's Hindupedia. Again, it's a resource that's available for you to use freely, and at will.
0: Alright, thank you so much. There's one final question that I wanted to ask you, which is, what advice do you have for young Hindus, young people growing up in this country who want to uh, learn more about their ancestral heritage and their roots?
1: There are a lot of resources available today versus 10 years ago. Um, and it really is limited by your own hunger to learn. Hindupedia is one of many resources that, that you can go and use today that, that try to provide information to you. Now they have a couple of flavors. We are in a somewhat rarefied area where we only present the AMIC perspective, that is the insider's perspective, and we explicitly do not try to uh, counter misinformation. So Hindupedia doesn't talk about an Aryan invasion. Even my slides today don't really talk about the Aryan invasion beyond the initial slide, which is a survey of of you as listeners to the talk. Um, There are much more resources available if you want to find out, hey, has, is, I'm not sure I believe this, is this true or false? Um, then, you, you know, a simple Google search will will help you uncover those sources. Adajiv, Malutra, uh, and Infinity Foundation is one of them. There are many, many others as well. Does that help?
0: Yes, absolutely. Um, so to close the, the conversation out today, Krishnaji, we're so thankful for, for you to come on our forum our first uh, hsc chacha and i think um this went really well um i know that i personally learned um a lot from your presentation here today and i'm sure um all of our viewers did as well um and we hope uh viewers that you stay engaged with us um for our future discussions um we'll make sure to let you guys know when those are happening um throughout uh the the school year and the academic calendar. And um, we plan on doing these uh, once every two weeks. So, again, to close this conversation out, I want to thank um, Krishna G.U. once again. Uh, do you have any, um, anything to say to close up today's episode?
1: Uh, no, just one thing I neglected to, to say up front, which is I wanted to give a shout out to all of my fellow HSCers at Cornell.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you once again, Krishna ji. Namaste. Thank you, everyone, for joining this evening. And we hope to see you soon. Namaste.